Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible with you or you use your phone or app or whatever, I'd love for you to open, find your way to Mark 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There's Bibles under the chair in front of you, but I'd love for us to be reading this together. We're going to spend some time going through this passage. Um, so if you're not sure where to find it, halfway, flip a few pages until you see Matthew and then keep going to Mark. That's where we're going to be, Mark chapter 10. Um, but we've been in this series looking at the book of Mark. We've been talking through verse by verse for the last several weeks. And this is actually our third time coming back to the book of Mark over the last year and a half. We are spending a lot of time in the book of Mark looking at what Jesus actually said and what he actually did. And I was, as I was preparing this week, I was wondering um, where you might find yourself as you're reading through this, where you're thinking about it as you're hearing this teaching. And historically, there's, there's two kind of critical camps, and maybe you find yourself in one of these. One of them, and this, is, this would be true for even the first century readers, is to read the Gospels kind of like biographies. Like a, it's a biography of Jesus. And, and if you've read a biography, typically what you do when you're reading it is you think about, what are the things that I want to take from this person's life and emulate them in mine? What are the things they did that I want to avoid? Those kind of things. We do this assessment with biographies. So that's one camp you might find yourself in. The other is, and this is maybe even more com common, is the idea that the Gospels are just anecdotes that are strung together, kind of giving us a s historical timeline of Jesus' life. And the reality is that it's neither of those. It's so much more. Jonathan Pennington, in his book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, talks about this idea that the Gospels are designed intentionally and that Jesus is, is portrayed beyond just a great figure to be emulated. He's the Messiah who changed the course of history and these writings are intended to communicate transformational messages, making a claim and call to faith response. So if we approach the Gospel of Mark, if we approach the Gospels this way, then we can see that they're highly ordered, they're extremely intentional, and they're written with a narrative style to give us a fuller understanding of the story of God and hopefully an immersive experience to see ourselves in that story. So if you got the email this week, we, we encouraged you as you read through this passage to see yourself in this story, to imagine yourself as one of the characters or one of the people or one of the, one of the just to see yourself in the story. And hopefully that was a helpful experience for you. And as we go through it and break it down, maybe that brings even more life to it. If you didn't get the email, that's okay. You can, you can still do that. Later today, you can read through this passage and, you, and just see what it's like. Which character do you most identify with in this passage? But we're in a section in the book of Mark that is sort of a subsection of the whole gospel, and it started back in verse 31. If you remember, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? But then who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And this kicks off this whole theme that we could sort of summarize as the cost of the kingdom of God. Or maybe another way of saying it is what kingdom people should look like. And so in 831, Jesus began to teach them, and that and then we've been in these teachings over the last several weeks that have been really challenging. Things like following Jesus means denying yourself. Jesus is trustworthy to listen to, so listen to him. Power comes from faithfulness and connectedness to Jesus. Serve the most vulnerable. If you remember the week Dale talked about the children and the millstones, this whole idea of protecting the community. We talked about marriage and divorce and the heart of God revealed through scripture. We talked about money and generosity and the reality that within the kingdom and with God, all things are possible. 
So it would be easy to read these as just journal entries that Mark threw in the book. But again, there's an order to them, and it's intentional. And I think the reason is because Jesus is building this kingdom, and Mark's laying out what it looks like for people in the kingdom to live. And so the the passage we're going to look at today, it's the last teaching that Mark records before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And spoiler alert if you haven't read it, Jerusalem is where all the things happen. This is the pinnacle of the mission. Jesus gets crucified in Jerusalem. All of the stuff is about to happen. And this is the last thing he teaches his disciples before they go in. And so I can't help but wonder if what we're going to read might just be the capstone to Jesus' heart for his kingdom people. So if you've got it open, let's read together. We're going to start in verse 32. And here we go. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us. Jesus, thank you for your teaching that we can learn from. Father, I pray that as we uh, look at your word this morning, that it would transform us to be more like you, that we would love like you love, we would serve like you served. So I ask your blessing over this time, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's kind of two parts to this passage, right? There's Jesus foretelling his death, and then there's this kind of wild request of James and John. So we're going to break down the passage, and then we're going to camp out at the end for a bit. So a couple of words stick out right away in this foretelling, because the people, the disciples, everybody, they're astonished and amazed. And I can't help but wonder, why this time? Why are they astonished and amazed? Because Jesus has told them he's going to die two other times before, so this isn't necessarily new. If you remember Mark 8.31, it says about the same thing. Mark doesn't record the exact words. It's the summary you see on the screen. And the response the first time, Jesus is rebuked by Peter. Peter says, no, you got it wrong. That's not what's going to happen. The second time in Mark 9.31, we get the exact words more or less. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And the response this time The disciples didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. So maybe they thought that it was still kind of a metaphor that he was talking about, that it was just, uh, I don't know, something that might happen theoretically. 
But this last time, they're astonished and amazed. And these words, astonished, that's the word that we get phobia from. It's to put to flight. It's to terrify or frighten, to literally withdraw from. Amazed is dumbfounded to the point of becoming emotionally stalled or shutting down. Either way, whatever camp you find yourself in in this story, people are freaking out by what he said. And so, a side note here, as you, we talked about biblical literacy this summer. As you're practicing biblical literacy, as you're going through scripture and you see things like this where people feel something, you can, you can think about, gosh, what am I currently feeling? Am I currently withdrawing from Jesus or am I drawing into Jesus? And why am I withdrawing or what's drawing me in? We can place ourselves in the story and say, what is happening with my relationship with Jesus? And these are things that we can think about and reflect on. But I think the reason that they're astonished and amazed, is the details. So he adds Jerusalem. This is the first time that he's added a place that's going to happen. And remember, they're on their way. They can probably see it in the distance. And so in some sense, it's imminent. There's, there's like something tactile to what he's saying. You can see there the capital G Gentiles. He's talking about Rome. And if you remember how Romans kill prisoners, how Romans kill people, it's a cross. And so all of this talk of the cross that he's been mentioning and talking about, I think for the first time they're starting to see maybe, maybe it's real. And then he gets really specific. He says they're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And while this is horrifyingly specific, it's also deeply prophetic. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it's part of what's known as the servant songs. It's Jesus speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people. Jesus says this, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. See, the disciples are Jewish men. They've grown up going to church. They've been in synagogue, and they have heard Isaiah read over and over and over again. These words are important to them. They, are, they know these words. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to do that, it's making a connection that is so deep to them. And so in this section where Mark is highlighting the cost of the kingdom, I think right here he's showing that the disciples are finally starting to get what that, cost, what that cost actually is. But then you get kind of this right-hand turn, or left-hand turn, whichever you prefer. And these guys come up and ask him this wild question. And I picture it like, these guys have the nickname Sons of Thunder. So if you could imagine, I don't know, like high school, big high school football players who are kind of rowdy and they're like, they're like walking along the road and they're like, no, you do it. They're pushing each other. No, you do it. No, you go ask them. No, you go ask them. They're like elbowing each other and arguing and it's getting rowdy. And one of, this is one of the funniest things to me about this story is in Matthew, Matthew actually says their mom is with them and she's the one who's like, quiet boys, and she goes up and asks, right? Like it's this really funny scene and I'm sure the chosen portrays it really, really well. But if you think about it, this is, a, this is like in the midst of astonishment and amazement, this is what these guys are scheming. And they come up to Jesus and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus told, just told them the brutality that is going to happen. And, he, and they come up, do this thing for us. Do us a favor. Now, we recently started letting our daughter use iMessage when she's at home from her iPad so she can text us for war at work. And I couldn't help but be reminded, I was in a meeting with Dale a couple of months ago, and I get this text from her, and it says, Dad, I need you to get me something from the store. I'm like, okay, what, what do you need from the store? Cake mix, frosting, sprinkles. 
And I'm like, well, why didn't you just say that the first time? And I think it's because there's a, there's a little bit of self-awareness there, right? Like, I might be asking for something that I'm not sure Dad really wants me to have this afternoon. I think it's similar here. I think there's a little bit of self-awareness. Jesus, we want you to do for us what we, whatever we ask. So Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? He could have responded, no, I'm not going to. But in his grace, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, if we were reading this as a biography and we're doing our assessment, right, what are the things we want to emulate? What are the things we don't? This is probably in the don't category. This is probably something you don't go ask somebody right after they tell you they're going to be murdered. Um, But James and John, they're making this power move here, right? They're asking to rule over people alongside Jesus when he's victorious in his kingdom. But Jesus has been trying to make it clear for all of the chapters that we've been reading, for all of his ministry, that the power the world seeks is over people. The power the kingdom seeks is for people. And what I love about how Mark recounts this story is he shows the grace and patience and kindness of Jesus when he responds, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Really quick, What he means here by cup, it's the Old Testament image of judgment. If you look at Isaiah 51, it says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Or Ezekiel 23, you will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. Not a cup you want to be drinking of, right? And then baptism could mean one of three things. It could be the baptism of John, which Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry. It could be the Christian baptism, which the apostles would teach later in the New Testament, but that hasn't happened yet, so they wouldn't have that context. Jesus already did John's baptism, so he wouldn't need to do that again. And so it's the third option, which is that the Greek word for baptism was sometimes used figuratively or metaphorically representing the overwhelming bearing of tragedy and affliction. So Jesus is clarifying, can you handle the judgment, the suffering, and the affliction that I'm about to step into? We can, they answered. And I think they answer so confidently because they they still aren't quite sure. They've got the perspective off a little bit. I think they think they're walking into Jerusalem into a battle, that they're going to take over Jerusalem by force. And sure, it's going to be hard. They'll probably get wounded in the process. But I think they thought that the suffering and affliction Jesus has been talking about would happen in a literal battle, not the willful sacrifice and surrender. Jesus has been trying to make it clear the whole time that the way of the kingdom is flipping glory and power on its head. And James and John still have this earthly view that we fight the enemy with the enemy's weapons, and when we win, then we rule over the people who lost. But in God's kingdom view, God sacrifices his son to get all people back to him. And the, and the spots reserved for Jesus on the right and the left, we're going to find in a couple chapters, are criminals hanging on crosses with him. Because the power the world seeks is over people, but the power the kingdom seeks is for people. So James and John, they get a pretty bad rap here, but the other ten disciples don't exactly show up well in this moment either. When they heard this, they became indignant with James and John. And I don't think that they're indignant because they're just embarrassed that their buddies asked a bad question, right? Or I think they're indignant because they wanted that very same thing and they just didn't get there to ask first. 
I think Jesus sees it too because he says, like, bring it in, everybody. He called them together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. So remember, this is first century Rome. This is the era of the Pax Romana. But peace in that time is taken with force. It's taken with political power. It's taken by war. And Rome would make sure that everybody knew it. Prisoners of war would be brought back. They'd be paraded through the city, publicly shamed in triumphal processions and forced into slavery or prison. In Rome, there's these things called the triumphal arches, which is reserved for the emperor leading the parade through the city for everyone to see all of the people that were conquered. Just 10 years after Mark was written, the Colosseum was finished, and it would be filled with games of prisoners and slaves fighting to death, it would be, it would, part of the entertainment would be public executions. If it wasn't that, it was the public execution on the cross. And if it wasn't that, it was the oppressive taxes. One way or another, the way of the empire was power over people. And Jesus contrasts the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. And this, I think, is the capstone of his teaching. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Notice how he doubles down here to make it abundantly clear the way of the kingdom. Servant to slave. And I wish there was like some way we could hide behind that word in the translation, but it it means what it means. It is a bond servant. Somebody without any ownership rights of their own. So I read an article about first century Roman slavery and the first thing that comes up is a content warning because of what is in that content. Scholars estimate up to 20% of the Roman Empire population, which was 50 million people at this time, 20% were enslaved. So chances are good that the first readers of the book of Mark either were slaves or for sure they knew slaves. And so this metaphor is very, very real to them. This is from the British Museum. It says, under Roman law, enslaved people had no personal rights and were regarded as the property of their masters. They could be bought, sold, and mistreated at will and were unable to own property, enter into a contract, or legally marry. I think it's fair to say that nobody wants that. It's awful that people were treated that way and are still treated that way in the world. And yet Jesus actually said, whoever wants to be first has to become like that. And it's not just to people we like, not just people who are like us, but to all. Because Jesus is emphasizing the way of the kingdom isn't over people. The way of the kingdom is for people, and it will look like a kingdom of slaves. I don't know about you, but this is hard to read. It's hard for me to say this out loud. I wish it didn't say to be a slave to all. It's really, really hard stuff. And it's what Jesus said. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning just kind of working out how do we do this and examining this. Why would we do this? It's like opposite of anything that we've ever heard. Why would we want to do this? And I think the first step is to acknowledge that we can't. We can only do this because we have a Savior who did it first. For at least a century, it's been largely understood and thought of that power, the desire for power in humanity, was so that we could control other people. But in 2016, there was a study that was done that revealed that people who desire power are actually only looking to control one thing. It's themselves. This is from the 
psychology journal that published it, it says power as influence is expressed in having control over others, which could involve responsibility for others. In contrast, power as autonomy is a form of power that allows one person to ignore and resist the influence of others and thus to shape one's own destiny. So essentially, our built-in desire for power, and we all have it to some degree, is at its core the desire to control what happens to us, to control our own life. Now, another study that was done to summarize the triangle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, have you all seen this? It was summarizing it, basically saying that there are three categories, competence, relatedness, and autonomy. So it would make sense then, in our desire for power, we're meeting one of our basic needs, autonomy. This is why this study came out to say that the, the design, our desire for power, is actually just to control ourselves. And isn't this at the core of James and John's question and the implicit desire of the disciples too? It's not necessarily that they want to control everyone else. They just want to secure their seat in what they think the kingdom's going to look like. That might lead to having control over others, but ultimately they just want to control what happens to them. But their way of thinking is opposite of the kingdom. The kingdom Jesus talks about isn't individualistic. It's authentic community. It isn't ruling from comfort on high in like white ivory tower. It's the mess of linking arms, caring for the vulnerable, stepping into the stories of the sick. It's forgiveness, it's service, it's sacrifice. The way of the kingdom is submission, it's not autonomy. And this is the conflict. From a psychological perspective, and the Bible would say it's because of the nature of sin, we can't fulfill the way of the kingdom on our own. And so we have this inherent fear the fear of being taken advantage of, the fear of humiliation, the fear of being outcast or overlooked. And then there's the other side. You might be thinking, this whole thing is ridiculous. Why would anyone ever want to do this? This is naive. This isn't how the world works. This is contrary to everything we've ever been told. And I think you're right. Because the kingdom of the world promotes power over people, but the kingdom of God is about power for people. It's creating a counterculture to the culture of the world. So if we can acknowledge that our human tendency towards power for autonomy and instead be willing to submit and accept to what Jesus did, we have a chance to experience the freedom and life that Jesus offers. So look what Jesus says next. He says, for even the Son of Man, even I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave up heaven and came to earth. He became one of us, but he didn't just become one of us. He came and served us. And as if that wasn't enough, he could have easily conquered Rome, but instead he allowed himself to be crucified by Rome. He stepped into the role of the suffering servant. He became a slave to all, even to death. That word ransom, it's the picture of buying back a child from ruthless kidnappers. And this is what Jesus did for you on the cross. He gave his life in place of ours so that we could be safe and secure at home with the Father. So when we acknowledge that we have a God who loves us this much, that he would sacrifice his son for us, when we can accept that we are valued and loved infinitely by Jesus who willfully, obediently died in our place and is committed to us no matter what, when we see Jesus do this for us, I mean really internalize that he gave up the beauty, the eternity, the riches, the majesty, all of the things of heaven 
to become a slave for you and me so that we can be reconciled with God, there is a confidence and security that comes in a love like that. It's a confidence that no other love can provide. A love like this gives confidence that overcomes the fear of giving up control, that overcomes the fear of being humiliated or taken advantage of, that overcomes the fear of being outcast or overlooked. Living in the reality that the creator of the universe knows, accepts, and is committed to his children, there's a confidence that comes in a love like that and a desire to do what he did. So I know second, this is from last week, but we're going to use it again. Second, with God, all things are possible. Each time Jesus foretold his death, every time, he didn't just stop at death. He didn't just say, I'm going to die, but every time he also said, three days later, I'm going to rise. For Christians, the cross is so significant. It's foundational to everything, and equally so should be the resurrection. Because Jesus didn't just die, he conquered death by raising to life. And because he rose to new life, not only does he offer new life to everyone who would say that they follow him and believe in him, in the power of his resurrection comes the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God, the very presence of Jesus now offered to you to be with you, not in some distant temple, with you, always. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. This is why he can say that. The resurrection power of Jesus literally resides in each person who calls Jesus Savior and Lord. You might be thinking that this sounds mystical, but this is the reality and the assumption that Jesus is teaching from in all of this. In all of his kingdom teaching, he's assuming the power of the Spirit. The kingdom isn't over people, which is authority perceivably earned or given or taken. The kingdom is power for people, which is given away by the Spirit. And when we have the Spirit of God living inside us, it's possible to live the way that Jesus lived, to value the things that he valued, to care for people the way he cared for them, to serve the way he served, to become a slave to all. Because within the kingdom of God, with God, all things are possible. So third, there is work to be done. John Mark Comer says, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We've said before that the goal of a first century disciple when they're with a rabbi, when they're with a teacher, is to be with their teacher, to be like their teacher, so that they can do what the teacher did. The Christian faith is not a passive faith. The kingdom of God is not a passive kingdom. Because not only does Jesus teach what the kingdom of God should look like, intermixed with all that teaching, he's healing people, he's sending the disciples out to heal people, he's serving, he's teaching the lost the good news, he's sharing with those far from God the good news of, of, of the kingdom. The whole picture of a bondservant, that's not easy work. But because we saw Jesus do it for us, because we have the spirit of God living inside us, it's possible to do that work. We're transformed from resisting that kind of work to desiring that kind of work. And it's not to be saved. Anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord is saved, but because part of being in the family of God, being ransomed, purchased out of slavery, Jesus says it's time to get to work, to pick up the cross and follow him, to do what he did. Experiencing the life of Jesus rarely happens overnight. It's the process of little practices over time, 
increasing in that experience. So can I get really, really practical for a second? Some of you are like, no. Thank you. Jim said yes, so we're going to do it. Part of what Dale identified at the Night of Vision and Prayer back in February, he talked about that the whole church, not just like buildings, not just organizations, but the, the global gathering of God's people needs to be renewed and rebuilt towards the kingdom of God. And so he gave three ways for us to specifically do that. He talked about the idea of hospitality, of service, of generosity. Those are the three things for us as a, uh, as a representative of that global body, for our body. Those are the things that we're going to focus on to rebuild and renew. And so when you hear opportunities to serve here, it's not just to get people in the room to help out with something. It's truly to practice the way of Jesus here together, to practice the way of the kingdom here together in order to shape a counterculture to the culture that we all experience every single day that says, you do you, seek your own autonomy. Opportunities to serve here are creating a counterculture. When we invite you to be hospitable, it's not just to get together with people you like, though you should do that. That's very enjoyable, very fun. We should be spending time together. But the New Testament word for hospitality is actually to, means to entertain strangers. It's to practice the way of the kingdom in order to shape a counterculture to the culture that we live in that says relationships are a means to an end. When we talk about generosity and invite you to participate, it's not just so that we can buy stuff here at the church. It's literally practicing the way of Jesus of saying, what I have, I'm, I'm giving back to God. It's to practice the way of the kingdom in order to shape a counterculture to the culture that we live in every day that says, get as much as you can for yourself. So getting involved at church is more than just a checkbox. It's more than an event on the calendar. It's practicing the way of Jesus to shape a counterculture to the culture that we live in every day. It's practicing power for people instead of power over people. I was listening to an old Bible Project uh, podcast episode with Tim Mackey and John Collins this week, and they were talking about the kingdom of God, and they were kind of riffing on this idea that, like, the kingdom of God could never be a part of a modern government structure, right? Like, no first line in a constitution says, like, uh, we will fear and obey Yahweh above all else, right? Like, there's cer certainly religious heritage uh, that shapes the language of many countries, but there's no political systems that would say every law is shaped by the sacrificial way of Jesus, forgiving, surrendering, creating peace and justice. John makes this joke. He's like, you just get beat up all the time. And Tim, re Tim responded, and he said this line that struck me and has been kind of haunting me all week. He said, it does exist. It exists right now. It's called the church. It's this institution that Jesus himself instituted, a multi-ethnic covenant people bound by their allegiance to Jesus and his love for them that live by a radically different value system as a counter to cultural influence. And the reason this stuck with me this week is because, again, the church is not a building, it's not an organization, it is people. It's a group of people who are committed to the way of Jesus. And the reason it haunted me is because I was like, am I doing that? Am I trusting, am I believing that Jesus did that for me, that I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit so I can go do that for other people? So the reality is, with Jesus' teaching, we have work to do as people of the kingdom, but it starts by acknowledging that Jesus went first. He humbled himself, humbled himself to death, and he did it for you. 
As a part of every service, we spend time responding, reflecting on the scripture that we've looked at. Sitting in silence, listening for what God wants to say specifically to us. And so I invite you to close your eyes and just quiet your heart, your mind for a moment. Try and let it sink in what Jesus has done for you. And I want to read one more scripture for you. It's Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. So as you're, as you're thinking and reflecting, this is what Paul says. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus left heaven for you. He died. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we don't have to so that we could be reconciled to God. And he rose to, to new life, offering it to you and giving you the Holy Spirit. It is the most amazing gift of all time. 